Canon image stabilized binoculars and a comment Nishimura observation on episode 356 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So we have a few Patreon supporters to thank before we get going here, Shane. We do. Uh, thank you to Mark, Sean, and Joe, our newest Patreon supporters. Uh, and as always, uh, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate uh, your support. It helps us keep the show going. Yeah. And that Mark is Mark Radici over at Refreshing Views. I just point that out because Mark has a great YouTube channel with um, sort of a, a YouTube take on similar content. If people are interested, they should go check out the Refreshing Views uh, YouTube channel. And I talked to Mark quite frequently offline. So it was uh, not, I don't want to say it was funny, but I was like, I didn't know he was sending in a small donation. I was like, oh, that's great. And I'll just give his uh, YouTube channel a big plug. Just yeah, yeah. For that. So. yeah. No, that's great. And also, Chris, we, I want to just shout out to two of our probably newer listeners uh, that okay. we have. All right. Uh, it's my niece and her oh. partner. <laughs> they, uh, they, li- uh, well, they listen to us during tea time in the afternoon, apparently. So. Ooh. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, and they love the music, Chris. They love that. I know people do like the music from my yeah. cousin Will. So yep. gotta, I got to have Will on. And we, Will and I did a recording at Christmas together in person, but um, his microphone didn't have batteries. <laughs> and so it just wasn't, it wasn't there. It wasn't there. We, we have to uh, do a draw at some point. Alistair, our friend yes. Alistair Ling has given us, or he, he has it. We don't have it in hand here. Um, like a mini monocular wide field instrument I, I really don't want to say it's a telescope i think that's that's a misnomer yeah like it's um is was it camera optics yes he, yeah so it's camera optics with some 3d printed i don't know parts. i guess adapters yeah parts yeah. that allow you to change eyepieces and and kind of handhold this thing I'm, I'm not i'm not sure i'm 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 guessing you could probably figure out a way to put it on a tripod we haven't seen it so have yeah. the emptor <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it he he had I think photos of it on yeah. that episode. It, it looks, looks very cool. interesting yeah. and it looks very capable. So certainly um yeah, we need to figure out a way to do that. So. Yes, yeah, so September 17th, I was I was thinking maybe we'll do the draw around then. My observer's calendar is due to be done and going to press on the 15th. So then after that should have some more time to play around with uh, with our podcast. Yeah. And did we say that it was uh, for Patreon supporters? It's, yeah. It, uh, that's not what we said. That's what Alistair uh, mentioned. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That was his, his request uh, for whatever reason. I think also, I think the main reason for that is, and for us, it actually makes it easier for us to do the draw because then, uh, well, Shane, because he's the one that has access, uh, goes in and just does like a random uh, draw from, from the names that are in the Patreon. And then we already have the contact uh, details for those individuals. Otherwise, we really have to uh, spend uh, a lot of time and, and effort trying to figure out how we're going to do the draw, which is uh, what we ran into in, in earlier years of of the podcast before we had any Patreon supporters. <laughs> All right, let's get on to some binocular stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe first, I'll just ask, have you been able to get out? Our conditions here, by the way, folks, are absolutely abysmal. These are the worst conditions for astronomy uh, last night and this morning uh, that we have had uh, since we started the podcast. I think probably is fair to say, Shane. 
Yeah, we get these. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people know because this has been in news headlines around the world is, uh, you know, there's a lot of forest fires happening in Canada. Um, and depending on how the wind blows, they're far, far away from us. There's no, there's no real threat, uh, to, uh, where we live, but, uh, depending how the wind blows, sometimes uh, that smoke just envelops our province essentially, um, or large areas of it and makes, uh, observing next to impossible and, and, uh, even going outside, not much fun. Uh, but I did get a little bit of observing in uh, during the daytime yesterday, actually. Uh, earlier in the day, the smoke wasn't here. So I pulled out the H-Alpha telescope and had a look at the sun. Oh. Um, super active still. And there is a prominence that, um, I guess, from my point of view, when I do the left-right uh, swap, um, it would have been at about 7 p.m., I would say, and probably about the size of uh, like a Jupiter diameter. It was uh, quite enormous and it evolved uh, throughout the day. I, I observed uh, probably around eight or nine in the morning and then had periodic looks until about 2 p.m. And uh, it definitely changed during that time, as did some of the other features. Um, there was a number of large filaments, um, some real bright areas too. Uh, you know, what was kind of interesting is, um, there was a, I don't know if it was a CME, a, a coronal mass ejection, but, um, there was certainly some kind of, uh, matter, uh, you know, ejected from the sun that was a direct hit on earth. And last night, uh, was supposed to be a very bright Aurora, uh, show. Uh, so last night, uh, for the listeners would have been September 2nd and, um, uh, I'm not sure if the Aurora was out. I haven't checked, but certainly with the smoke we had last night, we weren't seeing it, but, um, uh, it was neat to look at the sun and just think, you know, I'm kind of looking at the regions that would have, uh, sent that matter to us. So it was kind of fun. I enjoyed it. Very and you, good. have you been out observing much? You know, I, I did see the Aurora not last uh, night. It was the uh, morning before. So I guess it was the morning of. The second, I I was out uh, just briefly, and I was trying to see if it was going to be uh, smokeless enough to see the comet. It wasn't. Uh, the smoke at the time was rather thin and uh, very little at ground level. And when I looked to the north, uh, I was surprised to see what would have, if the moon wasn't in the sky and there wasn't any smoke, been probably a spectacular where I could see the curtains and maybe even detect a little color because the moon was just uh, uh, less than a day past full uh, or so, or whatever it was, maybe two days past full. And and yeah, you you could see a spectacular aurora in the northeastern uh, sky where the comet was. So between mm. the bright moon, the smoke and the aurora, I was like, there's no way in heck I'm seeing this comet tonight. This is not happening. No, no. And it, uh, it sounds like you kind of, like you need decent or pretty good conditions, I should say, to oh, observe this thing. Yes. Yes, for sure. So the comet we're referring to is Comet Nishimura. Uh, maybe I'll get to that in a second. Sure. Um, Shane, we've done some past episodes on binocular astronomy. I sort of looked them up really quick. Uh, could be wrong here, but most recently we did episode 322, a beginner's guide to binocular astronomy. 321 was the one that we did with uh, Robert Azumendi uh, about 3D printing uh, binoculars uh, and, and his analog sky project. Back on episode 249, we did constellation view binoculars. 
in episode 223, we did all about binoculars. And then in number 14, uh, we did recent observing and a guide to astronomy binoculars way back when. But you know what? We do a lot of binocular astronomy. So I think we can fit with this B2, four, five. We can do a sixth episode uh, in 355 shows, I think, or 356 shows. Yeah, well, I think I think we, we're yeah. okay. Yeah. We're okay. We're okay. Uh, in a recent episode, I can't remember when, one of the ones recorded, uh, I guess the week before last, I mentioned buying the fourth edition of the Backyard Astronomer's Guide. Not sure if you recall uh, me uh, chiming in with that. Yes, yes, I do. So I don't know if it was uh, buying that book or Alan Dyer's signature or or what, but this is the fourth edition. It's it's my, you know, I've had a couple of copies of them before, but when I uh, received my first copy back in the early 90s, uh, I also received a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars um, with the Backyard Astronomer's Guide first edition. And uh, that's when I really get into sweeping the sky uh, and observing. Um, I'm not sure, did you, did you sort of start the same way with the Backyard Astronomer's Guide and a pair of binoculars? Um, no, I, I didn't actually, well, sorry, I, I 50% of that. I, I started off with the book, um, but I did start with a, uh, eight inch daub. And then okay. because of that book, uh, I ended up getting a pair of, I think they were 10 by 50 Bosch and Loms, uh, at that point in time, uh, that was Terrence Dickinson's and, and Alan Dyer's uh, yes. recommendation for like sort of that best value astronomy binocular. Yes. And in the recent edition, they, they go into a lot of detail, and then Ken Hewitt-White uh, does uh, a binocular tour of the night sky um, with 10x50s, and, and they still seem to side with 10x50s, although now they're they're sort of giving a little bit more recommendation to sort of like the 8x40-ish uh, range as well, and they go through a lot of the uh, more modern and recent instruments. What's neat, though, is the opening shot, so Alan Dyer arranged the, or did the photographs for the majority of of the book, I, I believe. I, I haven't checked all the images, but for the binocular, buying binoculars for astronomy section, there's a shot of a yellow tent sort of lit from the inside and then the Milky Way and a person looking through binoculars. Well, that person is Michael uh, Painshot, who's one of the, who was one of the interpreters at Grasslands National Park and uh, somebody that, that we did events with for many years. And uh, Alan had gone and grabbed him or, uh, you know, somehow set it up and they went out and, and did these photographs the night before we were doing our event in the Grasslands National Park uh, just a couple of years ago. So it's kind of cool to see that image because I'd seen that image just after it was taken because Michael had it on his phone. Alan had left. And then he was like, check this out. Alan took this photo of me. It's like this beautiful photo. And uh, so it's really kind of amazing to to see a photograph, which which in a way, like we had something to do with, whereas we do the uh, the outreach in the Grasslands National Park. And then Alan had gone down and and done some photographs. And then so you have this photo from our favorite place to do astronomy uh, in the binocular section for this book. And it feels for me, it feels like this sort of strange full circle where the book inspired me to go do astronomy. Eventually, I became really involved in the outreach at Grasslands National Park. And then we have a photo of somebody using binoculars in that place where we like to do astronomy. Anyway, it's sort of a roundabout thing. But uh, I, I was like kind of surprised to see that photo in there and really impressed. Pretty cool. Hmm, right on. So 
I don't know if it was my nostalgia or recently being with Mike and his Canon 15 by 50 image stabilized binoculars at, at the star party we were at together. But recently I was out trying to hunt down Comet Nishimura and, Mm -hmm. uh, and what happened was uh, we had these, these fairly smoky conditions uh, a week ago and a couple of weeks back. Anyway, I I'd seen a post where somebody had, been able to view the comet through 12 by 60s. And I thought, huh, if this person can see it in 12 by 60s down somewhere in the States, um, which might not be as good a spot as I have here, I should be able to see it in my 7 by 50s from my site because it's in a pretty dark, the comet Nishimura is in a pretty dark area of the sky for me. So I got up last Friday morning, after because we recorded on Thursday evening, I got up at 3 o'clock on Friday morning, then I get up uh, and I scan the sky. I thought I found it, but I was like, huh, this sky is not good enough to see a magnitude 7.8 or whatever it was comet. I went inside, updated my software, and yeah, the comet wasn't in that spot. I went back out and verified, yeah, it was just a double star that was masquerading as a comet, but the uh, comet would come by. I don't know if it was a double star or not, but there's two stars relatively close together in my 7x50s, but I knew that comet would come by that spot a couple mornings later. Saturday morning, again, I got up at about 3 or 3.30. I went out. It was better, but like there was still a halo around Jupiter, no mm-hmm. halo around Saturn this time. Uh, the moon had still set, so I knew I had uh, probably a few more mornings to give it a shot, and I spent a long time scanning around for that comet. And I knew I had the right field, but I just couldn't quite see it. And at that point, I thought, I really need to get a pair of these image-stabilized binoculars that have slightly higher power and a little bit better resolving capability because, Shane, uh, you've got the set of the 12 by 36 version 2s. And maybe we should just stop here and say, like, how do image-stabilized binoculars work? What's the main advantage of them? Yeah, so there's electronics in them. um, And... The Canon ones, I, I can't speak to the others, but I'm sure they're all pretty similar. The Canon ones use the same image stabilization in their binoculars that they use in their cameras and lenses. Um, so it's just a gyro that you activate on the binoculars with the push of a button, and then it compensates for any sort of vibration or movement that you just have hand holding them. Um, and it is one of the most profound experiences, uh, that I've had, uh, with binoculars for sure. It's, it's crazy because when you're looking through them without engaging, uh, the image stabilization, it's very shaky. It's what you'd expect from, a you know, a 12 times magnification handheld binocular. Soon as you press that button, it's like you just put them on a tripod, except you're handholding and you have the the luxury or the freedom to just pan around and look at whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Um, It is such an incredible um, uh, use of technology. It just, it really makes binocular observing uh, much more doable for me because one of the reasons why I never really did a lot of binocular observing before I got the cannons is they just drove me crazy. I, I just was not able to handhold binoculars very steady. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm going to bring out a, uh, a tripod and all of the gear to stabilize binoculars, typically I just much rather bring out a telescope. Telescope. Why not? Yeah. 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 Yep. So that's, uh, that's my story. <laughs> So on the third morning, now I didn't get the binoculars at this point yet, but on the third morning, I didn't set my alarm. I'd I'd forgotten. In fact, it was looking like last Sunday morning was going to be 
uh, very good conditions, but we were finishing up painting the observatory, which I'm now almost resigned to the fact that it's not going to be done this year. Just about, mm. yeah, it's, we're getting too close to winter and there's, there's three things, three or four things that need to be done and they're fairly major on it. And my, my builder, who's a really great builder, he, he simply just has some other larger projects that he's working on and he just needs to drop down uh, for a few hours here and there to do it. Uh, but those projects are just, just, I think, occupying him. And so, um, you know, I'm at his, uh, uh, at, at his sort of free time availability and, you know, I don't want to go bug him on the weekends that he deserves to have a weekend too. So we'll just see, I, I hope he gets some time later in, in the fall to come and finish it up. But, um, we did spend a long time working on it, finished the paint job, ish like it's got a couple small things i have to do as as he progresses along but um i was just bagged the other thing i did is uh, as you know shane i have some uh food challenges uh, i can't eat everything and i decided to eat a bunch of um uh, different things that i'm just i can eat individually but i shouldn't eat together and when i do i can get a migraine and fortunately i did get a migraine at three o'clock in the morning that woke me up anyway <laughs> So, so I had a migraine headache and I came out and I sat here for 10 minutes, took a couple Advil and the migraine cleared up. And 10 minutes later, I was like, holy smokes, it's time to view the comet. It's 3.30 or 3.20 in the morning. Uh, this actually is the one time I was actually happy to get a migraine headache. And uh, unfortunately, it cleared up. Like I said, in about 15 or 20 minutes, I felt, uh, you know, like 90% better. And uh, after drinking some water and uh, yeah, I was totally dark adapted because I didn't turn on any bright lights, of course, because when you wake up in the middle of the night with a migraine, uh, you don't go around turning on bright white lights. So I was like, oh, I'm really dark adapted. I I threw some... Uh, you know, have your pants on and my coat and open the door. And it was the clearest sky that I've seen this summer. I, I couldn't get over it. In fact, it must have just been a hole in the smoke that was uh, that was moving through. And I thought, wow, if I'm going to see this binocular uh, comet in my binoculars, this is the morning. If I don't see it this morning, it's uh, just not visible to me because it's it's that good a sky. So I went out and it did take uh, a little bit of effort I, I, like I said, I tracked the field down over the previous couple nights. I knew where it should be. And there's a bit of a path. If you, in these mornings right now, between about 3.30 our time and, and 4.30 or quarter to five, you can see Castor and Pollux uh, rising over in sort of the uh, uh, northeast-ish uh, part of the sky. And if you follow this down a straight line, I don't know if you remember this or not. I was observing with you at somebody's uh, acreage just outside of Regina. This might be 10 years ago now. And I had my um, I had my 10 by 70s up on a parallelogram mount. I'm okay. sure if you're, there was yeah, a couple, yeah. couple nights we were out there. And I found like a big stream of stars mm -hmm. up on the Cancer uh, Gemini board. I'm not sure if you remember looking at those or not. I do. Yeah, I do remember that. I think I might've been imaging constellations. That you night. were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you were you were like imaging and and I was doing uh, visual and you were kind of stealing views. And I think you even had a something or other, or maybe your image stabilized binoculars out that night. And we were, we were having a pretty good night. And I remember it was pretty cold. And I was looking at this, this stream of stars. Well, this comet was just sort of another few degrees below that stream of stars. So it's a, it's a nice um, 
binocular tour to come from Castor down to Pollux. Sorry, I'm a little bit distracted. There's a giant blue jay that's flying. Actually, there's two giant blue jays that are flying around. And there's one looking at me <laughs> very inquisitively. It is a huge blue jay. Sorry about that. And uh, so anyhow, uh, you come down from Castor and Pollux, and then you'll see like a set of uh, sort of far apart uh, double stars. And then from one of those, there's this stream of stars that comes down. And then a little bit further along from there, you have uh, uh, this uh, set of doubles that this comet was going to be passing by. So I kind of I've been familiar with this field for a long time and then, uh, you know, over the past couple nights had become more familiar with it. And then I did that same process that I'd done on the previous nights and I just could barely see it. I would say it was probably about as easy to see as M33 when it's about maybe 25 or or 30 degrees high. So this was not an easy observation Mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess probably keep an eye on this one to see if it does brighten more. There's some some thought that it could, so I mm-hmm. guess we'll see what happens. I did a sketch. I put it in the notes. Not sure if that can be included or or sent out somewhere. And you can see the uh, Castor and Pollux. I didn't put too much of the star stream in there, and uh, you know, I just sort of put the fuzzy spot beside the two stars. Uh, that you can see and and jotted in some of the other stars. This was sort of just a very rough sketch from memory that I did uh, the following day, but uh, but I did. I was able to see it through through the seven by by fifties, but it was tough, and I I really was resolved after <laughs> after doing that to to get the uh, Canon uh, image stabilized binoculars because. Um, over the years, I enjoyed the views through Mike's 15 by 50 image stabilized binoculars. And I'm not sure, did you, have you ever spent much time looking through those ones? Um, I wouldn't say a lot of time. Like when we've been out, Mike has handed them off to me and and I've used them to look at things or he's had them on a tripod and I've, you know, I've used them there as well. So, uh, but not, not extensive. Yeah. When, when he first bought those, we took reclining chairs up to that, that hilltop spot. Sometimes we used to go to outside of Moose Jaw and we were, we were up there and we were just sort of trading the views back and forth. And I was, I was so blown away by the 15 by fifties. I thought for sure that I would get them, but the, uh, the thing with those that, uh, was a little bit of a stumbling block was, well, one, uh, they are a little bit more expensive than the other models, I think, by about uh, 90%. <laughs> okay. They're a little bit more expensive. And uh, the other thing was, is as you've seen with Mike's, he'll often mount them on a pair of, or on a on a little tripod, or if, if you don't mount them on a tripod, they do work perfectly if you're seated. And for seated um, in a reclining chair, a zero gravity chair, I don't think there's much better than those 15 by fifties. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, I think those are ideal actually. I've, in fact, I've, I've contemplated many times picking those up because Mm -hmm. they they certainly go deeper. And I did, I did always like them so much, but when you brought your, or bought your, uh, 12 by 36 version twos, what really drew me to those was their lightweight, Mm -hmm. uh, capability and thinking about how I use my my binoculars, which are all between about 24 and 28 ounces, I like the fact that uh, those 12 by 36s of yours were in that lower end weight category. So it's much easier to just grab them. And like I was the 
the past week kind of taking them and, and wandering around kind of almost in the bush here trying to get a good uh a good spot where i might view the comet and i i do enjoy that aspect where you're just kind of standing uh walking around and then taking good views of the nighttime sky which you, you might do if you're just at home or if you're traveling uh you're probably not going to have a reclining lawn chair or there's all kinds of other instances like you said i i could for sure see getting a pair of the 15 by 50s at some point in time but uh just for this purpose, which is just trying to find a good spot, which has a good horizon to get a good view of, of a comet at the horizon. Uh, I was like, huh, I, th- I think this is what I want. Although I think the 15 by fifties could work well for that. Uh, the difference in price kind of put me over the top because my, uh, my astronomy budget is, is a little bit strapped these days due to the uh, observatory build. <laughs> to mm-hmm, the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes sense. You, yeah. You have to prioritize that stuff and the observatory is is the right priority probably for for now so there's a couple oddities with these um binoculars these image stabilized binoculars from canon um one is the power they come in a few different powers there's there's an eight power one there's a couple 10 power ones 12 power 15 and and 18 power and uh, why is that important, uh, Shane? Why is this this higher power important when we're using them for astronomy? Well, I, for me, it just um, you know, you again, you kind of go deeper in a way. Like it just uh, the magnification is is a, a nice thing to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're able to resolve more, um, but there is a there is a cost. Like these end up getting into the price range of not quite what they call like alpha binoculars, like Swarovskis or, or items like that. But they're definitely, uh, you know, getting getting up there on price. Uh, I think the the least expensive one for astronomy would be the ten by thirties, and I think they go for about between five and six hundred dollars these days. So that that's sort of the entry binocular. And these twelve by thirty sixes are the next ones up. They make an eight by twenty or something like that as well. But I'm not sure what the advantage of having image stabilization at eight power would be. I've never looked through those. Yeah, I've read about those. I'm intrigued because they're uh, somewhat smaller, um, and people that have used them, like on birding forums, uh, they they do say that you you know you don't like usually with those smaller binoculars you can get away with hand holding quite well, um, but these birder reviews that I read, uh, they said you know that image stabilization, it's kind of like you think you're okay without it and then you use it and and it just really again enhances that view because everything just is now steady and you can get in you can take in more detail of whatever you're looking at birds or whales or whatever you know whatever is of your interest there are some oddities like the um the lens caps or lack thereof like these 12 by 36s and and i think some of the other ones don't come with lens caps it's mm-hmm. sort of a bit of a strange because typically when you get binoculars, they they come with caps or or a large cap or something you can put over the objective lenses. But uh, I think for many of these image stabilized binoculars, they they don't come with lens caps, do they? No, and that's been a complaint that people have had for years and years. Like I bought mine probably close to ten years ago now, and uh, even back then that was a complaint. So it's surprising to me that Canon hasn't you know figured out a way to. <laughs> include some caps because I don't think that would eat into the margin very much, but who, who am I to say? Yeah. The other thing is they don't come with really much of a protective case. They come with uh, 
sort of an oddly like semi, I don't know how to describe it. It looks like you took half a parallelogram and cut it in two or something as like this strange, uh, very thin fabric case with a somewhat slanted um, Canon silver anodized metal logo on it, but it doesn't really offer very much in the way of protection for basically what amounts to a piece of uh, electronic binoculars that you're going to be taking out outside with you. It's sort of an odd uh, combination to to put a fabric bag uh, with this sort of binocular versus almost every other binocular I've ever purchased. They come with at least a, a semi-hard case or like a like a case that's going to provide some sort of protection from being crushed inadvertently. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the case certainly was lacking. I used it for a number of years. Um, and then I upgraded to a, a Pelican 1200 case to protect it when I'm flying or driving. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy it. Although you, it looks like you found a really nice case. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to get yet, but I'm still kind of kicking around a few ideas. But it's sort of all worth it, even for the price and even for some of these shortcomings. Oh, and the the um, the eye cups are rather odd too. They have these very thick eye cups that you can roll down and use uh, very effectively rolled down with glasses with these binoculars. However, the uh, the plastic is extremely thick and difficult to fold down so it's not something i'm going to be wanting to to do frequently because of you know pretty quickly i would imagine i would stick a greasy finger on the uh on the eyepiece lens so Mm -hmm. i'm going to just leave mine folded down i don't know is that how you use yours yeah yeah i leave mine folded down too so yeah now i gotta go through the problem of finding lens caps that can work with the folded down uh eye cups because with, with them folded down the the eyepiece caps that do come with it strangely enough uh do do no longer fit once uh, those are rolled down but it's sort of all worth it because when you press that little button uh like you said it just takes the shake out so we took them up on the hillside here uh beside the observatory uh first night i had them and uh, did a tour around with with my wife and handed those to her and you know kind of said okay you know, try to find the star. And she found the star. And I said, now press that little button. And then she was just complete, even though I had been talking about these for years, she was just shocked at the, uh, at how good the image was. And for her, she said it, it made it a lot easier just to even look through the binocular, which I hadn't really thought of before. Cause I, I personally don't have as much trouble looking through binoculars, but she said for sure, these were basically like the easiest binoculars she ever found to look through. And then I was surprised, Shane, because I went back to my Vixen Geomas, my 7x50s, which I bought because they they are one of the easiest binoculars to look through. And after using these Canon 12x36s for a couple nights uh, and then going back to the 7x50s, uh, I was actually pretty surprised that uh, that I sort of had to almost readjust and readapt to how these other binoculars worked, considering they they were previously my favorites as far as ease of view goes. So I'm not sure uh, if you had had enough experience with other binoculars before getting yours, but uh, the 12 by 36s are certainly a very easy binocular to look through. Oh, they are. Yeah. They're, I I can't say enough good things about them. Uh, I've logged hours of, uh, usage, you know, not just nighttime, but lots of daytime observing, uh, you know, nature and things like that. They're just wonderful binoculars. 
So there's a few other uh, sizes. So we talked about the 8x20s, talked about the 12x36s that that we have. Now, my 12x36s are the version 3. Yours are the 12x36 version 2. I have to say, in the dark, I don't know that I would be able to tell you which was which. I think they're essentially the same. I think yours, correct me if I'm wrong, when you press the stabilization button, you don't have to hold it. You just press it. Is that correct? And then it's engaged? Nope. Oh, you do have to hold it. You do. Although I'm going to say this is that I think it clicks in a little bit sooner-ish. And the other thing is that when I when I first was using it, I was really pressing it, mm-hmm. but you don't really need to press it. You only need to put your finger on it. It's almost the just the weight of your finger will turn it on. I'm not sure. Is yours that sensitive or do you really have to press the button? Um, you do have to press it like it. it yeah, it's not that light. Yeah. With these, uh, you know, like even just walking around. Um, a lot of the time I find that the, the button just ends up being pressed. Now, I'm not really that worried about it because the, the batteries in these will last quite a long time. And I think that is one of the other differences is they, they figure it out a way to get the battery to last a little bit longer in these. And then it seems like the button is a little bit easier to, um, to depress. And somebody said, or just like in reading it online, they said that it does engage a little bit faster. Although again, I'm not sure if I would notice in practical use. I think it's somewhere in the realm of half a second or a quarter second faster engagement. But I mean, you know, you can, you can just press the button as you're taking them up to your eyes. And often that's what you end up doing anyway. So I don't know if, if that's a real uh, measure, measurable improvement there or not. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to say. Hard to say, uh, but you know they are what they are, and they certainly are uh, a pretty neat trick. So I've tried a few of the others. The others that I've tried are the ten by thirties. Have Have you ever had a chance to look through those? No, no. The only ones I've looked through are the fifteen by fifties and the twelve by thirty sixes. Yeah, and I honestly think that that the twelve by thirty sixes and the fifteen by fifties. I think these are the ones to pick between or to own both of. Uh, just because the the view is appreciably different. The other ones I, I've looked through and the ones that I really hemmed and hot of over for, for the longest time, because the earlier versions were pretty inexpensive, were the initial 10 by 30s. Mm-hmm. And the thing that kept me from buying those, I looked through them so many times, but was there, I believe that these are the very early ones, like maybe late 90s or early 2000s. But I believe they really had um, a lot of reports of a limited lifespan on those ones. And I just couldn't, uh, fathom spending, uh, and at the time they were only, they were pretty inexpensive, maybe like two ninety nine or something like that, like compared to now. And I, I just still couldn't imagine spending like 300 or $350 or whatever they were on a pair of binoculars that might only last, um, you know, eight or 10 years or, or whatever people were saying. But at the time there was some concern they've recently, or they've, they've reissued them a couple of times since. And these ones are all much more robust than, than the original ones. But I've even read where a lot of the original ones are now still in, in action. So I think uh, some of those initial concerns weren't, weren't founded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I did find with the 10 by thirties, they, they have a six degree field of view mm. versus the five degrees of the, uh, more recent editions of the 12 by 36s. It was nice to have the extra field, but I found that at 10 power, 
I, I'm very close to being able to hold a 10 power uh, steady enough, especially in a lightweight binocular, that if I was to get a 10 by 30, I would almost try to find like a 10 by 32 or a 10 by 35 in a roof prism design and simply go with that. I just find that I didn't get that much benefit from the image stabilization uh, versus just simply having a lighter weight binocular. For me, it's it's about having a binocular that's sort of in and around, like the, the ideal weight for me anyway, is, as an individual is around 24, 25 ounces. And I just found that, uh, that with the 10 by 30, it was close enough to that, that I, I just wasn't getting that much of a benefit over the uh, non-stabilization. You can just try it. Like you, you put them up to your eyes and then you press the button and release it. And I was like, there was an improvement, but I don't know if it's an improvement that I'm willing to pay that much money, unfortunately. So I never, I I eventually abandoned the idea of getting the sort of the least expensive binoculars for, uh, for, for astronomy from Canon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all makes sense. You know, there's a lot of factors there to consider. And some of these ones are, are, you know, fairly close in magnification and objective Mm -hmm. size. So um, yeah, what drew me to the 12 by 36 is, was it seemed like the, the biggest objectives and the most magnification that was still in a fairly small form factor and mm-hmm. fairly light that I could use them for extended periods and not really notice it, you know, it, it, uh, any bigger than that. And it seemed like, you know, you're probably not wanting to hold them up, uh, to your eyes for hours, uh, at night, you know, yeah. but, uh, you, you need a little break probably at some point. Yeah. And, and that, that brings me to the 10 by 42s, which are often uh, commented on as being the best uh, astronomy binoculars sort of that, that money can buy. They're certainly, I think they are the most expensive one on the Canon line. I think uh, they're well up into like sort of that $1,500 uh, price point. And, and so for the longest time, I thought that I would get a pair of those and I was saving up my money to get a pair. And I went to a star party and there was a well-known amateur astronomer there and, and they had a pair of them and they said, you know, go for it, Chris, like, you know, here, like spend an hour with them. And I spent an hour with them. They were, they were excellent. They, they were probably among the best binoculars that I've, that I've ever looked through. However, I found that they did not fit my hands and I found them mm-hmm. awkward to hold. And they were 37 ounces, 36 or 37 ounces with the batteries and I found that they were just heavy enough that, again, you want it to be seated. And in my mind, well, if I'm going to be seated and have to sort of sit with them, then I really want that extra five magnification. Again, I just didn't see as much improvement with the 10 by uh, power as as I did with like the 15 power. 15 power just, you know, unusable looking straight through them without the IS engage or image stabilization engaged. And then, um, yeah, without the uh, with, with the image stabilization engaged, they were just fantastic. So all these binoculars, you have to put in a set of uh, AA batteries, and and when you press the button, the the batteries engage this system that's that's in the that's in the binoculars that allow them to uh, compensate for your movements by about between uh, three quarters and and one degree. But again, I just I just didn't see the improvement in the 10 by 42s. I, I've certainly used a lot of 10 by 42s. And again, it, it just seemed like, oh, if I'm going to get the best out of these, you're almost back to mounting them or or having to be seated. And I really like the fact uh, to put a pair of binoculars 
uh, you know, just uh, sort of around my neck or, or to hold them and then walk around at the star party and look through other people's telescopes and then sort of cruise the sky or do my binocular tour at a star party. Uh, I just found that the 10 by 42s uh, surprisingly didn't do it for me. And that's when I actually ended up taking the money and buying my Takahashi um FS60, which is actually much less expensive than a Canon uh, 10 by 42 binoculars anyway. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing with some of these image stabilized binoculars is you can get a pretty nice telescope mm-hmm. for those binoculars. And certainly, you know, it, they are very different tools for different purposes, but I don't know. I, uh, I sometimes have a hard time parting with a lot of money for binoculars, but yeah. I, I'm not as much of a binocular guy. So that's probably why. I, I do like using binoculars for astronomy and it, it's, it is a real cornerstone of my observing. However, um, yeah, I was just surprised, but I do know lots of people. I do know people that have simply, instead of buying that telescope after having some discussions, like, uh, when I was teaching my astronomy class, um, that have, uh, gone and bought the 10 by 42s. They say, well, what is the best one for astronomy? So, well, it's supposed to be the 10 by 42 because they have ED glass, they're very wide field at over six and a half. I think they're 6.6 degree true field of view. Um, it's slightly more than 10 power. So I think you do really get um, a real complete package in that 10 by 42 Canon. And I think that really is like an ultimate binocular. And because it is so flexible, you can use it for birding. You can use it for astronomy. You can use it for nature stuff, like whatever you want. You can take it on trips with you. Um, it's a little bit heavy, but it's not as heavy as the 15 by 50. So Standing with it is a little bit more practical. Um, you know, it can be sort of the best all-round binocular for some people. But for me, I want to be able to kind of hunt and peck around a little bit more. And uh, the idea of, you know, every time I use it, wanting to sit down a lot of the time is going to uh, is going to chip away at me a little bit, I think. So so the 12 by 36 is, uh, again, um, with that little bit more power and really the resolving capability of a 12 by 36 Versus a 10 by 42 is about the same. Plus, you know, we have those um, constellation view binoculars. And I was ta- I was chatting with Dave Chapman the other day about these. Mm, okay. And Dave said what he does is he takes the constellation view binoculars, sticks them in his pocket, and takes his 12 by 36s and those out at the same time. So he has the wide field of oh, the constellation yeah. views and then um, the five degree field of, of the 12 by 36s because... I suppose one of the downsides of the 12 by 36, it does have uh, one of the smaller true and apparent field of view. So the 10 by 42s give you 6.6, the 10 by 30s give you 6, the 15 by 50s uh, will only give you a 4.5 true field of view. Um, a 4.5 true field of view uh, feels very wide when it's a 15 power binocular uh, versus a five degree at uh, at 12x. So there there is some compromise there for a binocular that costs about half the price of some of these other models. Mm, yeah, yeah, I like it. Talked about the 15 by 50. The 15 by 50, uh, again, if you are in a spot where you can sit much of the time, and I know lots of observers who use them, I could definitely see owning a pair of these one day because sometimes you can find them uh, at a very good discounted uh, price. Like I think that's what that's what Mike did with his. I think he paid about the same as the price of the 12 by 36s for his and number of years ago. And the the thing I really like about the 15 by 50 is for some reason, they almost act like they have nebula filters in them, even when they don't. Like I find like nebulae just jump out in those binoculars, like no binocular I've ever used before. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, I just, they're just like a magical binocular, but like I said, I have, have to be seated. Sorry. What's that, Shane? I just said they, they are for sure. Yeah. Mm. I just have to be seated to get that effect. Otherwise I'm standing. And if I'm standing using them, I just can't stand and use them for that long. Um, But I think for seated, like if I'm in a reclining lawn chair, that though, that's the binocular I'd want. And I was chatting with, uh, with Dave Chapman about it. And he said, yeah, he, he felt the same. He has the 12 by 36s as well. And his friend as well has the 15 by fifties. And then when they go camping or whatever, and she goes in, he's like, uh, could you leave those binoculars? And certainly I, I think I've done that before with Mike where, uh, and I could see myself doing that still in the future. If we were out camping and it's a nice summer evening and we are seated, I would definitely want to have those 15 by fifties. But if I'm going to travel or not have a tripod available or not have a reclining seat available, then I think the 12 by 36s are are something that I'm just going to want to have at, at that point uh, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other, the big boys are the 18 by 50s. And I'm not sure, have you ever tried these ones? No, I haven't. Um, somewhat intrigued because of the high magnification, but uh, from what I've read online, uh, they are quite heavy and mm-hmm. I don't know that I'd enjoy them. So I would like yes. to look through them if I could. So by heavy, uh, these ones come in, I'm just sort of recalling off the top of my head, but the 10 by 30s are around 20 or 21 ounces. The 12 by 36s, I think they come in around 24 ounces or 25 ounces once you load the battery in. Uh, 10 by 42s come in at around 37 ounces. 15 by 50s come in at around 43 or 44 ounces. And I think the 18 by 50s are even a couple ounces heavier than that, maybe getting close to 50 ounces once you put the batteries in. I found with the 18 by 50s, I just a- almost absolutely couldn't stand, other than looking at the horizon, I, I just couldn't even raise them up hardly. Like it just didn't seem practical. Yeah, it, that's like holding a couple bricks in your hand almost. Like it just seemed that heavy. Mm, yeah, that's too much. <clears throat> yeah. And as well, uh, at 18 power standing, I found that the image stabilization wasn't quite enough. It, uh, you absolutely had to be sitting versus the 15 by 50. Absolutely. Image stabilization is enough hand holding the 15 by 50 while you're standing. And if you were like a young, really, uh, you know, well-built individual who maybe did some pretty good weightlifting on the side, I, I think the 15 by 50 would be just like the ultimate binocular just to carry around standing even um, because the image stabilization still, I, I feel works nearly perfectly um, even standing, but uh, yeah, 18 by 50, you need to be seated. And it's a 3.7 degree true field of view, which to me just starts to feel uh, restrictive. Like it really does start to feel like a pretty small field. Mm. You know, and, and to me, one of the advantages for binoculars typically is the wider field of view. So if you yeah. start to lose that, to me, you're taking away some of the big uh, value points for using binoculars. The the place where I could see the 18 by 50 working quite well is if you were in a city and had very limited, uh, uh, you know, available spots that were dark and, and couldn't really get to spots and you simply wanted to do some lunar observing with uh, a binocular that's the binocular. So, so if you can sit and, uh, or prop yourself up really good against uh, something, which in the city, uh, there's lots of walls and things with railings and stuff. I think that would be a good use case for the 18 by 50. I could totally see somebody in that situation, uh, preferring the 18 by 50 over all these other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a use case for everything, I guess. Yeah. The 42s, 50s, 
they all have the ED glass. And I guess that's one of the other downsides of the 12 by 36s is for me, I find that they do have quite a bit of uh, secondary color um, in the daytime in particular. I found like uh, looking at buildings or other things like you, you can see this, uh, you know, chromatic aberration. And th then at night though, it's much more reduced. And I can see a little bit around Jupiter. I didn't really see much around the moon. I think just, just because it's so much brighter. Um, I haven't looked at Saturn yet. A few of the bright stars, maybe I can just start to see it. So it's not really that impactful because a 12 by 36 binocular, no matter how you cut it, isn't really like a, like a planetary tool, but we were looking at the moon and the moon does look absolutely spectacular through them. You can see a lot of craters in that we didn't really notice the secondary color looking at the moon with them. Well, that's good. Yeah. Not sure. Have you noticed the secondary color much with them? No, like I, especially even like I've used mine extensively in the daytime and I can't say that it's uh, been noticeable to me. Now I'll take another look through them to see if I can identify it, but maybe I'm just not as sensitive to it. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. And I am very sensitive to secondary color. So I've even um, gone to the eye doctor, get new prescription glasses. They didn't use high index glass and have I've had to go back and had them uh, remake my glasses, say like these are just unusable for me because I find like the secondary uh, color often in just off the shelf prescription uh, polycarb glasses. Uh, to me, it's I, I can't I can't wear them. I just get like a headache. And everything mm. either has a has a blue fringe or a red fringe to it, typically in in the glass they use. Um, so it's in fact, I have to say this: it it doesn't have as much secondary color as my glasses do, and it could even be my glasses. So keep in mind that I am wearing my glasses while I'm looking through these. So that could be playing a factor in your glasses uh, may not have as much secondary color, so you simply uh, just may not be noticing that. Yeah, yeah, it could be. All right, so that's kind of it. I, other, I haven't never looked through any of the other image stabilized binoculars um, from any of the producers other than Canon. Um, Zeiss has a twenty by sixty, which I imagine are on your wish, wish list at some point, Shane. But I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe Dream List. I'm pretty sure yeah. that would be out of my price range. I think I Nikon think makes some too, don't they? I don't. I think they do. I, I'm not familiar with the Nikon's. Uh, Fuji has made some, which have gotten. Um, various reviews some of them very positive some of them neutral and some people don't like them and then there's there's another company that seems to make a lot for like vixen and others they come in the popular model seems to be like a 16 by 42 but the eye relief seems to be small and they again only have about a 3.7 or 3.8 true field of view so that seems to be small uh as well and they they may not they're not sort of optimized uh for astronomy having only whatever it is like a two and a half uh, millimeter exit pupil. Hmm. So I, I I was able to get uh, reasonably clear enough skies to look at uh, M31, M11, M22, M42, the the Pleiades. Um, looking at the Pleiades uh, compared to my seven by fifties, you know, there's a chain of stars. They're like I think seventh magnitude stars that meander up to Merope. I'm sure if you're familiar with that. Yep. Yeah, I am. And. Uh, you know, on this night with some smoke and the moon uh, just passed full, uh, very close to the Pleiades in the sky, uh, in seven by fifties, I could just see it as a hazy line, maybe the odd speck sort of flashing in and out through the 12 by 36s. Uh, all those stars in that line are resolved. I can't remember how many there are. And, and that really gives you a good indication. It takes uh, little streams of stars and other groupings of stars from being just a fuzzy spot 
to being resolved. So when you point it at uh, something like uh, M11 through the 7x50s, that's just sort of a little fuzzball by that uh, sort of golf putter asterism in scutum uh, versus with the 12x36s. It's a it's a sort of a large ball. You can still frame that whole golf putter. And then what happens is you can uh, start to see some individual uh, stars there. And then as well, like the double cluster, uh, wow, like it, it really begins to be resolved versus in the 7x50s, you can see some of the brighter stars and then it's sort of a speckled hazy background a bit, uh, you know, still very pretty and nice wide field, but in the 12x36s, uh, it, you really start to get some pretty good resolution there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really love those binoculars. And if I... Like it, you know, because there's electronics at some point, I, I expect that the uh, image stabilization will quit working. Uh, that would be an instant rebuy. Uh, they're just that good. I would not hesitate. Um, I use them a ton and I just love them. Yeah. I think, uh, in, in what I've been able to research the other, the other thing I suppose like earlier on, uh, when these were released in the nineties and then early two thousands, once they started coming out with the second, uh, and then eventually third versions, um, there was concerns about the longevity of them. Uh, Canon is a good and reputable brand name. And then, like you said, they uh, are basing it on the technology in their camera lenses. And I think because of that, they've done a good job at creating a product that has uh, a very good lifespan uh, in the field. And you you don't hear many stories of them failing. I think there were some very earlier models that had some sort of problem with the uh, plastic coatings, but I can't help but think maybe people were putting bug repellent on their hands or other things and then handling the binoculars. And then perhaps that was uh, causing some of the breakdown, or maybe there was a flaw in one of the production runs and and they that i haven't heard any of those comments about uh, uh the coatings on the, the sort of the rubberized coating on the binocular not the not the optical coatings on the binoculars and then there's even people that did the extreme of they bought the binoculars and then just scraped off the plastic you know <laughs> like it's just like a rubberized coating so it's nothing that interferes with the binocular uh use itself it's just uh the the external uh rubber sometimes can had shown external wear in some of the earlier versions, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I can certainly comment on their toughness because I've dropped mine. <laughs> oh, wow. In fact, like accidentally off of our uh, kitchen island. Uh, so probably about a three foot fall onto ceramic tile. And this has happened twice in their <sighs> lifetime and they're still fine. They're still collimated. Yeah. There's no issues. Like they are tough. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that does happen occasionally when I engage the image stabilization, it's like it, it, it's not collimated. Like I can't merge the images. Mm -hmm. So I just release it, turn it back on and it's fine. Um, so sometimes I don't know, you know, maybe that's a sign of, you know, minor failing or after dropping them a few times, yeah, um, maybe that's the result. But, um, uh, yeah, you know, I've, I'm, like I say, I'm going on about 10 years, lots and lots of use and, uh, they just keep on going. Yeah. And, and you, you can read many stories of that. I, I suppose that's the other thing that eventually kind of put me over the top is initially I did have some hesitation on the longevity because it's just unknown when a product is new, it has electronics and it's meant to be used in the field in a different way, maybe than um, what was the original intent of, of the design. Uh, now it, it seems to be pretty, uh, you know, lock sure that you're going to get these. And unless you get into some sort of other uh, weird or wacky problem. It's something that should last 
for at least a couple decades. So I know a few people that have had them for like yourself at uh, 10 years. I know some people have had them for 20 or 25 years now. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping I last another 25 years, you know? So, mm-hmm. so uh, I thought, well, you know, it's, uh, it's time, time to get them. But speaking of time, Shane, I, I got your message here a couple of moments ago and uh, yeah. Do you have anything else to, to add to this uh, episode on some image stabilized binoculars that I finally bought after many years of thinking about it? Nope. Nothing else, Chris. And you really put me over the top on getting these because I had never looked through the call by 36s. They were the ones that interested me the most simply because they have decent power and are sort of the lightest weight for having um, more magnification than typically you would handhold because at 12x, when you're not hand-holding, um, you can kind of sort of see those close-in uh, fainter moons of Jupiter. But then when you just touch that button, you can see the moons right in tight on Jupiter. You can really begin to see craters on the moon, and you begin resolving star clusters. And like even in moderate smoky skies, I was able to punch through and see uh, M31, whereas my 7x50 just, just couldn't even see some of this stuff. And so that... Uh, that sort of is the, is the proof in the in the pudding for me anyway. Yeah, yeah, uh, they're winners, that's for sure. Yeah, look for some of my other non-image stabilized binoculars on a used astronomy uh, forum uh, soon <laughs> to help pay for these. All right, Shane, anything further that we uh, missed or need to add? Nope, no, that's it. All right. Well, thanks so much. Um, and dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. You can always send us your ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>